Hi, Mary. Uh, quick confession to make from me. I think I'm addicted to Desert Island Discs. <laughs> Excellent. I'm glad that you've seen the light, Dan. So which ones have you enjoyed listening to? A couple of them. They actually had some older ones in their timeline, I think. Back from Easter, they took a few weeks off and I had a couple old ones. Right. So I listened to one with George Michael, which was recorded in 2007. Ooh, okay. Which obviously, he's passed away since. It's kind of quite sad in some ways, but, but really interesting. And then with Billy Piper, the uh, actress and uh, and singer as well. I've listened um, to that one too. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, there was a bit of 90s nostalgia, I think, in that as well. I, th- I think I'm guessing she's roughly the same age as me. So there was a lot of the 90s bit. A lot of the songs she chose were like, would have been right up there mm. for my, my list as well. But I, I just I guess I was just so stunned at how honest and reflective the guests seem to be um, and ha- how insightful it is about about their lives and the things they they talk about it's quite amazing yeah yeah for sure and and I've probably listened to more of the Lauren Laverne ones than the the older set but she asks questions in such a polite way but she asks the most deep kind of cutting questions it's it's a real skill I think massively I was thinking that there's a yeah there's a lot of stuff about how to interview well there because she she doesn't dominate the question at all it's a very short question and it's very nicely put but it it puts the issue on the table and without being sort of aggressive about it so I I thought the question asking was an absolute art to it there's quite a nice structure and it's not really confrontational because they can they can just move away and say well okay so what's your third record sort of thing it just kind of changes the pace doesn't it and they can come back in and start talking about the big issues of their life kind of thing so it's absolutely almost tailor-made for podcasts isn't it even before podcasts were a thing because of the length of time it's so kind of neatly fits into that time scale it's just yeah brilliant. yeah i agree the, the only thing is but I suppose it depends if you like the song or not. Quite often, I like the songs that they're suggesting and they're really eclectic and it's a great mix. And then you only hear like one little section of that song. And I never remember to go back and, you know, save those songs and listen to them in full later. So that's on me really more than them. One one observation I had about the George Michael and Billy Piper ones, obviously they are both musicians, but they commentary on the songs was also really interesting because the way they think about it and the depth of how they described it um, really stuck with me. It was like Billy Piper's favorite one was um, Champagne Supernova by Oasis, one of my favorite all time songs. And she says, she said something like, it gives you something slightly different every time you listen to it. Mm. And that really stayed with me. I think that's just absolutely spot on with with that song. So it's just really interesting to hear how they think. Yeah, absolutely. Well, talking of following recommendations, Dan, you'll remember that we had Deb Clark on a couple of months ago. She recommended a book called Essentialism, which is by Greg McEwen, I think, is the is the author. Yep. So on that recommendation, because of how she described it, I thought that sounds like a good book for me to read. I stormed through it on a weekend away a month or oh, so yeah. ago. Yep. Absolutely fantastic. It. it just challenges the way you think about most things to do with work, which is brilliant. And, and just for the, the audience, it's effectively it's better using your time and it's not only in in a work setting it's also there are lots of tips that you can use outside of work and there are just so many little nuggets that you think oh yeah and they they really stick with you so I'm I'm on a pursuit to be an essentialist I'm not sure I'm quite there yet because I still say yes to too much stuff but yeah we're on our journey so I I read that I read that a few years ago and so remind me I think that isn't the basic gist that he's kind of saying you've just got to really focus on a really small number of things and kind of be really strict on trying to say no to a lot of other stuff to actually focus your time and energy into that small number of things yeah one one of the things really early in the book that I really liked was so the word priority comes from ancient Greek and the meaning of the word in a sort of direct sense 
specifies that it's a singular thing. So we've now expanded right. it. The, the use of oh, right, priority yeah. as plural <laughs> is a much, much more recent sort of phenomenon. And, you know, he, in the book, it sort of says, you know, there'll be a, a meeting at work about your top 15 priorities. Well, you can't possibly all have top 15 priorities because yeah, you're never going to yeah, do all yeah, of them yeah, well. That's absurd. So, yeah, so that really, that was one of the things that really stuck with me. So I am trying to have a priority at a time, failing miserably currently. And the, the problem is you read the book and then suddenly anything that you're doing that isn't as you know an essentialist way of doing things you're like feeling bad about the way you're doing stuff so I'm I'm on the journey and I'm probably at the most painful part so speak to me again in six yeah. months and we'll see if I've if I've well, cracked yeah. it <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll check in on your essentialism journey a little bit later in the year but yeah. speaking of priorities our only priority for, for for today and at the moment is talking about higher interest rates absolutely big conversation with a lot of clients at the moment obviously a lot of people wondering about what it means what to do and all that so we have a great conversation i think coming up with uh, our colleague steve hodder absolutely let's get on with the episode let's do it welcome to investment uncut an investment uncut we cut through the noise when it comes to investing we're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions i'm dan mikulskis and i'm mary spencer investment uncut is brought to you by the investment team at lcp lcp provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the uk including pension funds wealth managers and sovereign funds find out more at lcp.uk.com hi everyone this week, we've got an emergency pod on the subject of what investors are doing in a world of higher interest rates. Joining us for that conversation, delighted to welcome back colleague and LCP partner, Steve Hodder. Steve, welcome. Hi. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mary. Welcome back, Steve. Could you just give the listeners a quick recap of your role at LCP and I guess why you're here today? And also, as you know, we always ask what's one thing we should know about you that won't appear on your CV. Perhaps you can give us a new fact about yourself as well. My role at LCP, so I'm a partner in the investment team. That means I help my clients invest their assets, predominantly UK pension schemes, lots of fixed income bond investments, which is obviously the topic of today. What do you do when interest rates are shooting up? So looking forward to talk about that. One thing that's not on my CV, new addition to the family. So I'm currently learning how to look after a five-week-old baby girl. Six weeks ago, I thought investment markets had lots of ups and downs, but (laughs) it's all been put into context now. So yeah, that's a fun new challenge. Excellent. So you're sort of tossing between is a day at work more difficult or is a day at home more difficult (laughs) at the moment? Or which is more rewarding, I guess, depends what your lens is. Yes, absolutely. It's a lovely period of time, isn't it? Obviously, I can identify with that having become a dad a couple of years ago myself. So it's a wonderful time, isn't it? Wonderful and tiring. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. Yeah. Cool. So should we turn to markets then? Let's get right into it. So to say the obvious, things have moved a lot this year. We've had a lot of new news. We had a lot of central bank announcements. We've had all the usual kind of talking heads, prognosticators, forecasters, doing all sorts of talking and headlines and all that. Give us the quick sort of rundown of where we are today. And I was pretty should say we're recording this Friday, 24th of June. So where are we, particularly in terms of interest rates and what matters for longer term investors? So main features, inflation. We're all tired of hearing, but short-term inflation in the UK and global economies likely to hit 10 plus percent this year, which is crazy and not being seen for 40 odd years. That's point one. And that has all kinds of implications in terms of short-term valuations, in particular for pension schemes, the level of outgoes that they have. The bigger story is actually what central banks are now doing in response to that. 
I would say that short-term inflation rates are hitting double digits. Long-term inflation rates haven't moved loads. So pension schemes that have long-term exposures, it's not actually been that dramatic. But central banks are moving aggressively. We saw the Fed increase rates last week. We saw the Bank of England increase rates last week. Small increments relatively so far, but lots of guidance to suggest more is coming. And you can read plenty of arguments as to why the guided amounts of increases are not going to be enough. And hence, there might be shocks down the road when inflation is not controlled and more needs to happen. So the big move we've seen here today is the gilt market, in particular in the UK, the government bond market has seen the yield you can get on a 20-year bond go from less than a percent to more like two and a half. Clearly, that is an incredible rate of change in what is quite a small yield, but going up two and a half times in six months on a long-term investment is a dramatic change. So I guess that's the big thing we've seen. Now, for pension schemes, most pension schemes these days use lots of leverage to expose themselves to these types of assets in a risk-reducing way, which is something that has been going on for years and has largely paid off. But in a scenario like this, it works the other way around. Some of those LDI, liability-driven investment funds that are used to do that, are down 60 70% year to date and calling for lots of cash. So that's a lot of new pressure in the system for lots of investors who aren't used to that happening at all, uh, perhaps not practiced in dealing with this scenario. In terms of where this takes us to sort of historically, just to put it into context a little bit, I think we're back to sort of is it around 2016 levels for the long-dated gilts, sort of highest-ish for a decade? Yeah, that's right. Long-dated gilt yields are back to where they were pre-Brexit referendum. This isn't a political podcast, so let's not get into that. But <laughs> they've been on a steady downward trend for 40 years. Since the Brexit referendum, that's been a bit accelerated. And in six months, they've flipped back to where they were six years ago. So that's where we are. As Dan helpfully pointed out, we're recording this on the 24th of June, it's been moving substantially day by day. So there's no signs yet that this is the end of the story. And it'll be interesting to see where we get to. Absolutely. Thanks for setting the scene, Steve. Should we talk a little bit in more detail about different implications for investors? And as you've touched on a couple of times, this particular episode is a lot more focused on UK DB pension schemes, because that's where this sort of theme is most extreme, if you like. But there will be some pointers for other types of investors as we go through the discussion. So you mentioned LDI, I guess, being held for a specific reason. Do you want to just spell out what that recent trend means in terms of investors that have chosen to hold LDI over recent years? Pension schemes in the UK are typically have assets in place to pay pensions, which are due over many decades. There are requirements to value the future cost of all of those liabilities that are due from the scheme. And typically, those values are derived from prevailing guilt markets. So financial theory being, if I can get 2% on a government bond, that's a fairly risk-free investment. And then I can start building my expectations around that. If what I can get from a government bond goes from 5% 20 years ago to 1% six months ago, the amount of money I need to pay on my pensions has shot up loads because my future expectations have fallen. And what we've seen in the past six months is a partial reversion of that. The value or the amount of money I need today to pay on my future pensions is falling. LDI is a risk management tool that's been around in the UK marketplace for 10 to 15 years. The idea being that if I invest my assets in investments that behave in the opposite way to my liabilities, so they shoot up in value when my liabilities are shooting up, which has been the general trend for 10, 15 years, then that's great because if I need more money, I have more money. What we're now seeing for the first time, and pretty much every market participant is living through this for the first time, 
is that the amount of money I need in my scheme to pay all my pensions is falling because the amount I can earn from my investments going forward is rising. So that's great on the liability side and, and I need less money. There is a pain when you see your LDI type investments falling by tens or hundreds of millions of pounds. We know that's offsetting falls in what you need to pay out, but it is a real pound million cost that's hitting many pension schemes. And I suppose just to put that into context, I will not shamelessly plug this too many times in this episode, but we did recently release a report called Chart Your Own Course, which we'll link to in the show notes. It's got lots of data on what pension schemes are doing. And one thing I thought was worth mentioning at this point is the extent to which those LDI assets match or hedge movements in the value of the liabilities. So we call that the hedge level. We can see that actually, on average, pension schemes don't have a full level of hedging. So when the liabilities were going up, we weren't fully matching those increases just from that LDI portfolio. Similarly, as liability values have been going down, those also haven't been fully matched. We'll come on to what that means for pension schemes in terms of their kind of longer term pathways. And I guess we're living in a strange world where some meetings are happening with people looking after schemes with a billion pounds of assets and being told by their consultant that your assets have fallen 200 million pounds in three months. But that's good news in inverted commas because your liability targets have fallen 230. That's the situation many are finding themselves in. And as I say, we've lived through a long period of the reverse being true, the value of those assets shooting up consistently. And clearly, that's a much easier pill to swallow when things are moving in that direction. Back to the results in that report, Mary, it was about 82%, wasn't it? I think we thought on average, the hedging level for pension schemes. So that would mean that on average, pension schemes are still net beneficiaries of rates going up. And then we'll get to this later, I suppose, but even more so if you're talking about the buyout funding level where the liabilities are bigger. So we've got that point where sort of net beneficiaries of the move, but that still means there's issues around these collateralization, these positions, these derivatives, those sort of things. On a slightly wider point, it's kind of, I feel like what's happened this year has sort of been what people have talked about every year for about the last decade. So in some ways, it's kind of the most long-awaited move ever, the most kind of long telegraphed. I don't know whether it feels like a surprise or not, but it just feels like what we've been expecting for so long. It's almost like people maybe gave up on thinking it was ever going to happen. But in some ways, it's not exactly a surprise because obviously rates were very low. I partly agree with you, Dan. And certainly, most schemes we see that are invested in these types of leverage LDI funds have done all the work and the thinking on this and have thought through scenarios like this and what they would do. And that's really important because it means that when this happens, albeit it can be a bit of a panic when you see sheer volumes of pounds being lost on your LDI funds, you had a plan, you've got liquid other assets that you can call on to recollateralize the situation and it's not necessarily causing your scheme to fall over. And as Mary's mentioned, for many schemes in the bigger picture, it's actually still an improvement in your position. That's fine. I guess the bit that's interesting context is the severity of what we've seen. And we asked our risk team, we use value at risk models for various purposes. This is a pretty standard metric. Six months ago, a 99% value at risk shock to interest rates. So that's sort of saying a one in a hundred year bad outcome for interest rates was about a percent increase. And what we've seen so far this year is close to 1.5, 1.7%. So there is a point there on the scale of what we're seeing, I guess, a learning point that we should all have in our minds that risk models are only models and things can happen that don't fit within sets of assumptions. Absolutely. I'm struggling to remember, I think it was in the aftermath of the deep market volatility around COVID. So sort of April, May, June 2020. I can't remember who it was we were speaking to, but it was a discussion around risk. It could have been Alison that we were speaking to. And they sort of said, well, 
it's awful that we're seeing so much market volatility. But in a sense, it's a helpful reminder to investors that volatility does exist and can exist. And we lived in an environment with so much government support, central bank support, that it was quite easy to get quite complacent in terms of, you keep telling me that my LDI might ask for more cash, but it never has done. In fact, it's just thrown more cash off over the years that we've held it. And suddenly now, maybe we should spell out the reason why this happens. But suddenly now we're seeing, I think some of my clients have seen sort of five, six calls for collateral across different investments that they hold. And I think probably when the first one happened, they said, oh, yeah, you warned us about this. We knew this was going to happen. No one quite expected it to keep going so far and so extreme, as you said, Steve. I guess a reassuring point in my mind when I look across my own clients and when I look across clients that I'm involved with is that these schemes are not falling over in this scenario. We've seen a sort of model-breaking scenario in terms of interest rate rises And I think it's fair to say that many schemes weren't quite planning for this, but it's not caused schemes to fall apart. And actually, most of my schemes are better funded than they were at the start of the year. So it's about the plan that you have and the robustness of the plan and everyone knowing their role. And I guess partly not getting emotional in these circumstances. We know that's a big impact for investors across the world. And seeing those pound millions fall out of your scheme can cause some interesting decisions. It's a good point you made there, Mary. It's so easy to get focused on the regime that you're sort of in, isn't it? Things last for years. and It's just human nature that you get anchored to that and you can show whatever scenarios or shocks that you kind of like, but it can be quite hard to actually envisage that happening for whatever reason because you get very anchored to it. Obviously, the lesson is to sort of take those numbers seriously and actually maybe even stretch them a little bit further because the world always turns out to be slightly more volatile than maybe you think or what the risk models say. I think actually one interesting point is that because there's been some other reasonably good sort of news for pension funds over the last five years generally in terms of funding, that a lot of schemes, they were running in a position anyway that had a reasonable amount of collateral and sort of stable assets in the portfolio anyway. I don't think you were seeing that many schemes who were sort of running a levered LDI plus a very grossy rest of the portfolio. That was kind of just hasn't been happening really for the last five years because it hasn't been necessary. If anything, schemes are probably slightly over collateralized and under levered going into this, which actually is probably a good thing given how fast it's turned out to be. And I think you make a good point there, Dan, about the regime that we live in. And actually, something I was thinking through last night, we've had 40 years of inflation falling and interest rates falling. And yes, there have been a couple of blips in that period, but the general trend has been rates only go one way. Now, that 40 years is basically the world we live in, the financial world we live in has pretty much been established in that period. You have to go a long way to find someone who was working in the finance industry back in the 60s or 70s and remember a different time. So I think there's a lesson here that a lot of the wisdom that has been learned and a lot of the systems that have been built have all been in one environment when it comes to interest rates and that environment might be changing. Just on the cash demands point, can we just maybe draw out any kind of hints and tips and lessons learned from the last sort of couple of months. I guess we will have all seen and listeners will might have seen this as well. We've seen obviously seen kind of cash requests from fund managers, some of them sort of five business day, 10 business day type turnarounds to sort of raise cash and get it into a certain place. Any kind of reflections and lessons from that that you think are worth sharing? Yeah. So I guess if we just quickly step back as to why there might be a cash demand in very simple terms, these LDI funds are great because they use some leverage. That's why they're powerful. So that means that if you're trying to hedge lots of exposure to bond prices, you can not have to put all of the money in up front. You put maybe a third of the money in up front, and then the fund manager uses the leverage to get the rest of your exposure. Past five years, that's worked brilliantly because you're leveraged into prices that have gone up. 
we've been very used to fund managers turning around every other quarter or whatever and saying, actually, now I've got a bit too much money. Do you want some back? Great. It's the reverse happening now. So if the prices are falling and you're three times exposed, that gets to a point where the manager says, hmm, lost a bit much here. And the amount of physical assets you gave me is now no longer enough. So can you give me some more? Because otherwise the leverage just going to become too high. So that's what we're seeing. It's all rules-based and typical managers will have firm policies as to how often they test these things and how much cash they'll call for in different scenarios. So we know what's coming to a certain extent in terms of cash, but it is something that clearly schemes need to be managing well. I guess some lessons of what has worked well on the schemes that I've seen are having a clear policy in advance. So agreeing up front before we use this type of investment, what will we do in these types of scenarios? Which assets might we sell if we need more? And then more practical things, who needs to agree it? Who's available to sign anything that needs signing? How long have we got? And as Dan said, these can be relatively short-term calls. So having thought through all of that in advance definitely pays dividends. I guess having options, if a manager comes to you and says, we need 10 million quid next Tuesday, if your plan was to source it from an ABS fund, for example, and you've got no other options, we've seen periods in markets where ABS funds fall sharply in value and have very, very high trading costs. So whilst that might be a good plan in the majority of scenarios, having other options and places you can go is really important. So robust collateral waterfalls, we like to call them, typically have three or four different things. And you know that there are scenarios where it might not be plan A, but you've got plan B, plan C you can go to. A couple of other options that we've considered and implemented with some clients Selling equities to meet these calls can feel a little bit painful right now when equities are down too. So if you've still got equities in your portfolio and that's something that you're holding for the long term, selling them at the point where they've just drawn down lots can feel like a bit of pain. Synthesizing those equities, so almost moving them into the derivative world too, is one option there because that allows you to retain the equity exposure but free up some collateral. Of course, you've got to be really careful because if both markets are falling and what you're doing to solve the problem is to add yet more derivatives and add yet more leverage, you need to know that you're doing that prudently. You need to think through why you're doing that and what might happen. But that is something that some schemes are considering. And then the other option that some schemes are thinking about, and not one I've actually implemented on any clients yet, but it's been discussed, is where you have a recovery plan of contributions due from the scheme sponsoring employer. They might owe you some money every quarter for the next few years. Some employers are saying, well, actually, if you're in a real bind and you don't want to sell things, you could sell them. We're not about to fall over. But if you think it's not optimal to sell them, we can consider just bringing some of those payments forward rather than paying you a few million pounds every quarter. We actually have that money and we could roll that forward and put it in the scheme if that were to help you out. So having those types of conversations worth bearing in mind too. Agree with everything you've just said, Steve. I suppose a word of warning or something I was glad I'd done with a couple of my clients where they have holdings in illiquid assets, so you can't just sell them to plug these collateral calls, is to do quite stringent stress testing when you're going into those illiquids and making commitments to make sure that you think you can withstand taking the point that we mentioned earlier about these moves being outside of normal modeling parameters, but just thinking about in a stressed environment, if my assets are falling, my growth assets are falling, if my LDI is asking for money, if there's lots of members transferring out for lots of different reasons, can I withstand all of those things happening at the same time? Because whilst very, very unlikely, it is a feasible situation. And we've obviously seen two of those happen at the same time in this year so far. And I guess final action that then comes to mind off that, Mary, is what do you do to rebalance now? If you're a scheme 
that had your leverage LDI, you had your corporate bonds or your ABS alongside it, you've hoovered a lot of that into the LDI to meet these collateral calls. Fine, you're patting yourself on the back because it's all worked and you're not falling over. But should you now be taking other actions to top that back up? If you have semi-liquid things in your portfolio, are there dealing points coming up that you should be getting a 90-day redemption request in now to give you some more dry powder later in the year? Should you be forward planning in the same way you forward planned when you put this all in place? That to me seems the bigger question actually right now, because it seems that what's happened on average is that most schemes have found themselves in a decent position to satisfy these requirements in the short term, but are now left with a portfolio where they need to kind of do a whole replanning piece for the slightly longer term. But I guess, Mary, that's where we come back to what you were saying earlier. That's It's a great time to do a bigger picture, kind of drains up. What does it all mean? What's the strategy? Because overall, the scheme probably is in a better position, but needs to make some rearrangements perhaps on the asset side to make some decisions on how that actually works. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got your investment strategy that you've agreed whenever you agreed it, which might for some schemes be you know, a year or two or three ago. As Steve says, you might well now be quite far out of line with that strategy. So firstly, rebalancing, we've talked about it loads on the podcast before, is a good thing to be doing full stop. You're buying low, you're selling high. Replenishing collateral, very, very important in case markets continue moving the way they have done. But I suppose the other feature that we have touched on here is what is your position on a longer term basis? So we've seen, and again, just referring to the report that we'll link in show notes, We've seen that over the sort of nine months to March, so not reflecting the last couple of or three months of information and of market movements, we've seen positions on a technical provisions basis or sort of ongoing funding basis. Different for every scheme, some schemes seeing a small fall in their position in that time period, some schemes seeing a broadly flat position, some schemes seeing a bit of an increase. The one that's really marked is on a buyout basis. So if you were to pass everything to an insurance company, actually across the board, we've seen improvements in position. And actually, even since March, which isn't in the report, we've seen further improvements in that position. So whilst just talking about rebalancing to a strategy you set a few years ago when you thought you had a long way to go, actually, as Dan said, really, really good opportunity for a drains up what is my long-term strategy? Am I much closer than I thought I was? Does that change the actions that I want to take in this current environment? And that's certainly the conversation we're having. I think probably all three of us are having with most of our, well, all of our clients in a sense, but there's certainly a lot to be discussed at this point. Yeah. And it can all be a bit counterintuitive because if I'm a finance director of a scheme, I might be looking at a accounting number, which is getting worse because I'm overhedged on my accounting exposure to interest rates. And I'm seeing an asset value that's collapsing. And I might not be immediately thinking, oh, I better check whether I'm suddenly much better funded on buyout. That is not necessarily the way you might think about things. But for many schemes, that's the case. And a collapse of an accounting position might represent a drastic improvement in buyout position. That feels like that's been a bit the surprise across the board, really, that a lot of people have seen. I mean, it feels like any scheme that was kind of within a decade of buyout, it's suddenly got a lot more real. And it's almost they've accelerated maybe I don't know, five plus years of journey planning progress have sort of potentially happened in the last six months, which is good news, but requires work in the short term to figure out what to do with that good news and how to sort of react to it as a way to try and, as people say, trying to lock things in or get on a different plan or whatever it is you want to do with that info. And I guess just one other point, we talked a bit about LDI and collateralization. There's, there's another really important point in here on the tracking error of your LDI and the effectiveness of your LDI. Lots of schemes use pooled LDI funds, many use SEG. I think it's true for both. At some point, you would have assessed some of your cash flow profile of the scheme and come up with some models of your sensitivity to interest rates, and in particular, inflation. 
And then that gets packaged up and sent off to an LDI manager or a consultant and some assets are bought. Inflation in particular, when it changes drastically, can just change that picture fundamentally. And it's all about the caps that are in place on liability benefits. So it might be when you did all those calculations, long-term inflation was expected to be 3% and lots of your members' benefits were going to be linked to that. If long-term inflation is now 4.5%, then more of your benefits might be fixed. So what that means is you might have found that you're now quite substantially overhedged to inflation versus what you were planning. And you might even have some reports that say you're still on track, but they're based on the old cash flows that haven't been reassessed. So there's a really important question to ask there and a really important health check of, are we actually where we want to be on inflation? Or is there a bit of a hidden problem here that we're not aware of? And we'll find that we're way out of kilter with what the plan was. Looking at our own client data over the nine months to March, and again, this is to March, we saw that interest rate hedging, so on the fixed interest side, it went up a bit, a couple of percent, a few percent. And that will be mostly a direct impact of clients making decisions and seeing progress on their funding position and then increasing those levels. But inflation hedging shot up by around 10%. I don't think that most of our clients were saying we're going to really overhedge inflation or we're going to really increase inflation versus interest rates. So interest rate and inflation hedging started the year effectively at the same level as each other. And we've now got inflation hedging being much, much higher, just putting the numbers around it. I think the tracking error point is a really, really important one, Steve, actually, because there naturally is some tracking error inherent in any kind of a hedge, including LDI, whatever. And it's just that when the world has been relatively stable, you don't kind of see it. Then there's two kinds of tracking error almost. One is what the actual assets are doing versus what your liabilities are and what you would like them to be doing. And we've been talking a lot about this. There's so many little nuances around things like the date at which inflation is sort of calculated and passed into the whole thing. Is it April? Is it September? Whatever what the assets are doing versus what the actuary is actually doing, what the liability is doing. That does actually matter when inflation suddenly shoots up to 10% or whatever. You suddenly find that's an issue. And then all sorts of other little things in the LDI portfolio. So I think what we've seen is LDI tracking errors have gone up a little bit. And a useful reminder, that tracking error is a real thing. That's real assets that are changing in value in a certain way. It's a good reminder that you can't stamp out every last bit of risk in an asset portfolio if you try and do multiple things, I think. The other aspect of it, which you sort of touched on, there's there's so many little modeling quirks that come out of the woodwork when things like this happen. So the other aspect of the tracking error is almost, is your model actually giving you a good representation of reality at this point? I think we've encountered a few fixes, haven't we, where for whatever reason, there's a quirk in the modeling, which is causing either a hedging level or even a funding level to be over or understated just because of how things have moved. I think there's been really important calls to action there to kind of quickly look into some of those models, especially if you're making decisions based off them. And part of that is the translation from this hugely complicated picture of liabilities with all these caps and flaws and everything. The translation of that to a relatively simple, fixed and inflation-linked picture, which is much easier to hedge, but isn't actually the real thing that you care about. And that translation being a really important one, that itself creating a bit of tracking error these days. We've talked a little bit about certain actions. We probably haven't finished a full suite of a list of actions. Should we just kind of summarize what we've said so far and add any other? What should investors be doing right now? So we've talked about a drains up review, which obviously touches on lots of different areas. What sort of things are we looking in that drains up review? Well, we're looking at progress against that longer term basis and making sure we've got the latest picture of that. We've talked about rebalancing, but making sure we're rebalancing to the right thing. We've talked about getting your hedging right and allowing for inflation. What else should investors be looking at and thinking about now? So, I mean, one we've not talked about at all is forget 
pension scheme hedging for a second. What about just bond investments? What does this mean for the relative attractiveness of long-term bonds, short-dated bonds, floating rate bonds? We've lived through a world, and I think Dan mentioned earlier, that this is a scenario almost everyone was had at their back of their minds must happen at some point. Rates must go back up. So we've had lots of exposure, lots of client exposure in short-dated rates. We've had lots of exposure in floating rate instruments, whether that's ABS, whether that's multi-asset credit, loans, those types of things. All of that was on the basis that if rates start shooting up, we don't lose money hand over fist from those types of bonds. There must be a point where rates have gone up and you say, well, hold on a sec, glad we had that trade. Maybe I should get out of my short dated credit and buy some really long dated corporate bonds, buy some longer dated, have duration, have it back as a rewarded asset. We think actually we're being well paid for this. So I think there's a question to be asked there. Now, I'd go carefully. I think there's lots of reasons to think that the M might not have been reached yet on this story and that catching falling knives and all that type of stuff and converting your nice short duration floating rate assets that are relatively stable into long duration volatile assets is a bold trade for many schemes. But there is a point. And for some of my clients, we've started setting trigger points of, look, we're not going yet. But if a long dated corporate bond yield gets here, that now has become a great asset for us because that's much more than we even need from the scheme's investments. And I'm happy to take that trade. I'd add that to the list, just a broader review of your bond portfolio. And again, some of the inertia here for 10 plus years, favoring short duration, favoring floating rate for these reasons, has that just all snapped around in a couple of months? Yeah, but it's a really good point, isn't it, Steve? Because we work with other kinds of investors. We work with DC schemes, work with private wealth, we work with sovereign wealth. And there, if you base your forward-looking expected returns off government bonds, call it gilts, call it treasuries, call it whatever, your expected returns on everything have just gone up by about one and a half, two percent this year. So for a lot of investors, this is just hugely good news because their portfolio is now expected to earn, let's say, two percent more per year forever. And it's so weird given that's a long-term assumption to have changed so fast. But that's probably a reality across the board. And then particularly on bonds, bonds having been probably struggling to justify their place in a diversified portfolio for a while, especially on a real return grounds. And now looking potentially like they're getting back towards being a decent asset again. And then you sort of go through this step of logic where you say, ah, but inflation, because inflation is very high, so maybe they're not. But then, of course, as you said at the start, Steve, the actual longer term market expectations for inflation have actually, if anything, ticked down slightly in the last few months. So the, the market's not really buying into this level of inflation staying there for years and years. So long term real returns are actually going to a pretty decent place. And that's the piece being completely open. I don't think I've read or heard a very good explanation for so far. The story we're being painted is long-term nominal rates, nominal interest rates, gilt yields are shooting up because interest rates are going up, banks are acting, etc. And the market expectation is that base rates will be much, much, much higher decades in the future. But the market expectation of inflation at that point is not. So something's missing there in my mind. And welcome any thoughts here or just leave that as a hanging question. It is interesting. So when you look at the Bank of England's future expectations for inflation, and you see the inflation drops down again to their target within a couple of years time. I haven't probably seen their latest chart, but when I was looking at this in May, that was what you saw. But it's their job to try and manage inflation down, isn't it? So of course, they're going to say inflation needs to fall. And then bond markets do seem to have reflected that so far. But as you say, Steve, it doesn't necessarily stack up. The Bank of England has obviously been predicting the inflation would peak around towards the end of this year. When they've been, I think, slightly different to most economists. Most economists have done that classic thing pretty much all year of I want to say most economists. I mean, the average of economists have done that classic thing where like every month they've been forecasting that inflation is going to peak the next month and just keeps <laughs> rolling forward. It creates those kind of 
crazy charts. I've heard them called a hairdryer chart or a Medusa chart, where like every point you have this forecast of it falling, but it never does. It keeps going up and up and up. So you've got that weird dynamic, but the Bank of England is predicting a peak later in the year. And then like you say, a fall back to their levels. And bond market seems to sort of longer term, broadly buying into that kind of happening at the moment. So bond markets have not been great predictors of any of these things for a long time. So I guess one has to be a little bit skeptical and take a little bit of humility around that. That's it, isn't it? Skeptical of the markets, but also a bit of humility with our own calls, because it's very easy for any of us to say, I think there's going to be a recession, this, that, and the other for the next year, you know, recession for 2023. There's your amount of people saying that right now. And I don't have a great track record of calling recession. I'll put that out there straight away. <laughs> Some other people maybe do, but I think you have to be a little bit humble with how much weight you can put on any one call like that. I guess just two other things spring to mind of what to do, depending on who you are and what circumstances you're in. As Dan sort of touched on, bonds are back in, in some sense. Bonds are back. As a viable asset. We've lived through a strange period of central bank intervention in markets and lots of tried and trusted investment approaches with diversification between bonds and different types of assets start to break down when that bond is offering you no return and it's therefore coming at a cost. But if those bonds are now offering a reasonable return, reasonable yield, then maybe those types of approaches start to work again. So I think that's an interesting challenge in the mix. Other thought is DC schemes. Again, we've had 20 years of annuities becoming more and more and more and more expensive to the point where the rules have all been changed so you don't have to buy them. And most members and schemes now at least partially thinking about drawdown or taking cash or that sort of thing. When does an annuity now become a really, really good option for my members if I'm running a DC scheme? If I put them into an investment strategy that's targeting cash drawdown, I might not have loads of these long-term bonds. They might not have lost lots of this money and they might now be able to buy a really safe, secure annuity income for the rest of their life at a reasonable price. So if I'm running a DC scheme, that's the type of question I'm probably asking. One other point I had in my mind, actually, the sort of the elephant in the room here, I suppose, is what if DB schemes sort of turn around and say, okay, well, I'm nearly at buyout. Let's do it. How do I do it? Sort of thing. What are some of the considerations for a scheme that's not really thought about it very much and suddenly like, right, yeah, I'm ready to do it. Let's go. Top of my head, data, GMP equalization is the type of thing you can be looking at a chart and think, okay, great, we're there. But there's some practical aspects of this. It's typically a long, drawn-out process. I often find people are a bit worried to ask about the data because if you don't ask, you don't know what the problems are. But if you're early on in that journey, just getting a handle on how well you really know your scheme, because it's one thing having the data enough to do evaluation and pay some pensions. The insurer needs to know that everything's accurate and buttoned down before they're going to give you a price. GMP equalization, not an expert myself, can take a long time. It often needs to be done or at least have some decisions made before you can go and transact. Another aspect, illiquid assets. So many schemes invested in funds that are illiquid in good faith with long-term journey plans. And as Dan said, sometimes you can find now that that journey plan has changed by dozens of years, possibly at the extreme end. And you might find some of those assets you bought are now things that you want to try and get rid of. So exploring those and making sure you've got options to get out and try and transact. And I guess final point is just getting in a queue, getting in front of the insurers. I mean, one of my clients did a sort of big buy and transaction a couple of years ago and uh, talking with the same insurer to try and get another deal done now. And I think it seems pretty open that they're in the room because they're already known and they're a party that has been transacted with. If they were calling up out of the blue and saying, hey, you don't know us from Adam, but would like to do a transaction, then they might get a different answer. And I'm hearing noises that with lots of schemes heading in the same direction at the same time, that the competitiveness of that market second half of this year might end up being quite extraordinary. And hearing some noises that insurers are expecting to be writing deals at 
wider profit margins and effectively they hold all the cards. So what you can be doing to get ahead of the game in terms of your introduction and being a party that they want to transact with will be vital over the years ahead. Yeah, certainly what I'm hearing from our de-risking team as well in terms of this year is already set to be a, I mean, it feels like every year is a record-breaking <laughs> year in the record market, but this year is set to be another record-breaking year and actually next year could be even more busy because as you say, Steve, we've got loads of schemes now that we're seeing getting towards those final stages, but they still have a bit of a process to go through in terms of getting your data in a position that, because you can go to an insurer with bad data, but all that will happen is you get a worse price. So it could prevent you from transacting because you can't afford it, or it could prevent you from transacting at a good price, full stop, because the insurer just won't take you because there's too much competition. Another thought that if you find yourself in a far stronger position, then one option, which will be the right option for many schemes, is to run and try and insure everything and dust your hands of the situation. For other schemes, trustees are asking about removing caps on pension increases. The DB pension scheme is very good and very generous, but some of these schemes are offering 2.5% maximum increases. And if we're seeing inflation run at four times that, then that's not a great deal for the members. So if your scheme has found itself in a far, far, far stronger position, is there a middle ground here of trying to improve that situation and still be in a far stronger position than you were a few years ago? And the final option is I do just have a nagging doubt at the back of my mind that in aggregate, the DB pension scheme assets of the UK are about £2 trillion. Currently, the sponsoring employers of those schemes can barely get any value from that. But if you were to just run your scheme on another 10 years and build up a big surplus and buy out then when perhaps there's less competitive pressure, you can potentially get a refund of all of that surplus or part of that surplus that's left and huge sums involved. And maybe for some perhaps larger schemes, are comfortable retaining the risk and building healthy surpluses and seeing what they can do with that in the future. So for many schemes, it will present a good opportunity to be rid of a problem. For others, it might represent more of an opportunity. And, that, that's a and huge size really does question. matter for that one, doesn't it? Not a question we're going to answer right now, I don't think, but something to throw out in the context of what's changed. It is a really interesting question. Absolutely. Just getting back to the buyout point just quickly. I suppose the elephant in the room, the thing we haven't spelt out explicitly is there are things you can do to sort of expedite that process to buy out a little bit, but there's really is a limit to how quickly you can make that happen from a standing start here. We're talking in years, probably a couple of years lead time to something happening. And so I think the corollary to that as sort of follow on is that when we were talking about this, there is a piece around how do you invest while in a holding pattern for buyouts, if that might be multiple years, but your funding level is actually in a very good place. And that in itself is quite an interesting debate because a lot of the last few years has been spent on ever more levels of de-risking. But as we're now seeing, some of those hedges have tracking errors in them. There are things that can sort of throw you off a little bit. So I think a really good debate around how far you do actually want to go there while you're in that kind of holding pattern. How do you match it? Do you need to earn a little bit of returns? Making sure you keep good sort of investment discipline. We talked about some we see there's almost this worry of like a decadence mindset kind of setting in, which is like kind of, well, we just de-risk because we can. We don't need those assets. We don't need to invest in sort of an efficient way because we just don't need to. I don't think anyone sort of wants to see that, but you can see how that might happen. It's challenging everything you think you know and checking how confident you are in it. And the scenario I think I worry about is schemes with a couple of bits of paper in front of them saying, we're 100% hedged on our interest rate and inflation risk. And another bit of paper saying in three years' time when we're ready, the buyout price might be this. Therefore, we don't need any investment return. Therefore, we'll just put in cash and wait. Both of those things are pretty hard. If you genuinely have confidence that there are no other risks in this system and that both those numbers are 100% accurate, maybe that's the right strategy. I think evidence suggests that that's probably not true. And maybe just keeping a bit more of a sensible diversified strategy that has a higher return attached to it 
probably leaves you better off in many scenarios. So Steve, as we start to get to the end of this episode, we've had a really rich conversation and we've touched on so many different areas. I'd love to know what the one thing is that you'd like listeners to take away from today. So I think the biggest thing in my mind here is a point made earlier that just take a step back and check you're still happy with the decisions you've made and the plans you have in place. And we've seen this trend on interest rates and inflation only go one way for 40, 50 years. So there's a lot of inertia in the system. Human nature is the state. Oh, yeah, the current approach is definitely still right. And here's some reasons I'll fit to the story to explain why it's still right. But often it might not be. And it might be that you've been planning to do things for so long that it just starts to feel like there aren't any other options. But if things change this drastically, you do need to at least revisit whether it's still what you want to do or not. It's a great point, that, isn't it? We love fitting stories to something in order to justify our own position, status quo, whatever it is. It's a great catch. I mean, we're all guilty of it. It's just human nature. A good call to try and detect that and try and steer around it. Steve, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? I think from a sort of person in the street, personal finance side, I think something I encounter talking to lots of people is just an underappreciation that equities, stocks and shares often called, do have a long-term upward trajectory for good sound reasons. I think in my mind, I speak to a lot of people, whether it's family, friends, whatever, people who are not investment experts, who just have in their mind that equities and stocks and shares are framed as sort of a risky game. And the phrase playing the stock market, that all implies that this is, I don't know anything about that. I'm not going to play that game and might lose loads of money. Who knows? Of course, there's risk attached from making those types of investments. But in my mind, it's not a 50-50 call over the long run, whether you're going to end up with more money or not. There's a lot of risk as to how much more money you're going to end up in. But there's two big issues there. I think there's natural risk aversion from people who don't necessarily know lots about investing. So I think the easy answer is to say, well, no, not for me. I'll put it in a cash ISA and guarantee that I'll lose money. And there's just the inevitable good nature of regulations that mean every single time anything is written down about investing, it has to be plastered with risk of loss. And that's constantly pointed out risk of gain is never pointed out. And actually, a cash ISA never says what we are doing here is guaranteeing you will lose money against inflation. So I think, in my mind, just that disconnect between the possibility for some volatility and actually what the long-term sensible financial decision is, is something that is pretty prevalent. And I think it speaks to a wider point, doesn't it, in terms that we touched on earlier in terms of you've got all this modelling and almost for pension schemes, it's worked the other way around in recent years, potentially, is we model all this risk and we don't see it. It's a communications exercise, really, isn't it? That whether you're a sort of expert or you're assigned in a specific body like a trustee board for a pension scheme, or whether you are someone investing your own money on the street, feels like the comms exercise to better understand modelled versus actual risk and what that really means for my pocket. And long term and short term. And yeah, if you've got some money that you need next week for a house deposit or something, then yeah, don't pump it into equity markets and cross your fingers. But if you're making long term investments for your future financial goals, Short-term volatility should be, I think, way down the list of things you think about. But it is something that's human nature to think about and human nature to look at your account and see what's happened. And I think that costs a lot of people a lot of money when they invest in things that are too low returning. Excellent. Okay, Steve. So final question. Do you have any recommendations for the listeners? Yeah. So, I mean, books-wise was what I was thinking. And currently, as a new dad, Llama Llama Red Pajamas got some pretty good ideas. (laughs) More seriously. It's an old one and might be familiar, but it's something I read back at university, I think, certainly around that time. But Fooled by Randomness is an interesting book and interesting ideas by Nassim Taleb. And I think covers some really important ground that is similar to what we talked about in a lot of ways, that you can build models for things, you can build stories for what's happened and why. But 
there are lots of things that just happen and they're not explained by the model and they're not explained by the story you're hearing from your wealth advisor or whatever. And we need to make decisions in that context. The arrogance of making decisions, assuming that you can predict every possible scenario and understand what might happen and what might not can be quite damaging when it comes to risk management. Excellent. We'll add that to the show notes. Thank you. Yeah, that is a really classic book, isn't it? I think that's stood up really well, actually. If anything, sort of seems to have got more relevant over the years, hasn't it? So, yeah, it's definitely one worth revisiting. Steve, thanks so much for joining us on this emergency podcast. We've had a lot of fun, I think. We've managed to cover pretty much all the bases we've been talking about for the last few weeks. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, guys. And thanks to the listeners. And yeah, certainly interesting topics. Absolutely. Thanks, Steve. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. But do join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.